The Army Corps of Engineers is all about infrastructure, in particular the nation's waterways. When the infrastructure bill was signed into law, the Corps got a good chunk to get after some overdue work. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I spoke with the Corps' Deputy Commander, Major General Richard Heitkamp. We started with Corps of Engineers' work in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. We like to step in when our nation needs us the most. We're the nation's Corps of Engineers. So anything we can do to keep people in their homes really is the the focus uh, for any disaster response. So as you mentioned, uh, Blue Roof is um, one of the real cornerstones of our response, and it has a really evolved over the years. Um, used to be we'd go door to door and put up a ladder and get up on top of the roof and measure it up. Now we do it with drones. and wow. uh, Yes, and handheld applications on your phones. And so we still have a call center. It's like the Jerry Lewis telethon from our days, right? But we only take about 12% of those calls into the call center. Now it's all via phone and tablet and online applications. The legal work that has to be done for the right of entry for us to go in and measure the roof and assess it. Actually, the homeowner can take pictures themselves on the application and send those in to accelerate the process. And so instead of it taking 30 or 60 days for a contractor to respond and go in and put up a blue roof, now it can take a matter of uh, days or or less than weeks uh, before that contractor's there, which means less water damage for the homeowner, which means they can stay in the home. So whether it's temporary power keeping the homeowner in the home, repairing utility services for water or wastewater services, whatever we can do to keep the impacted population in their homes and so we're not treating people who have been displaced. That that really takes a big load off of FEMA and the impacted states. But you're active in Florida doing that right now. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. Wow. Any estimate of how many blue roofs there will be? There'll be multiple counties that are offered this opportunity. And so um, we will stay until every one of those counties that are impacted uh, has the opportunity to apply for those benefits. We will then assess um, what type of options we can offer, how they will um, fit for each homeowner's needs. Um, so we're there until e- each homeowner can um, request those those benefits. But it could be thousands by the oh, time. Oh, yes, multiple thousands. Wow. So much. contractors actually apply it, yes. but the Army Corps assesses the need and verifies it using drone technology. So you can yes. look down and say, yeah, that's a 30 by 60 exactly. or whatever. Exactly. And then we authorize the contractor to go in after the fact and to apply the roof solution. Does it have to be blue? I mean, <laughs> canvas come, you know, the tarps come in a lot of colors. Exactly. No, it, it's got to be. It's got to be patriotic, and it's got to be blue. <laughs> All right. Good. No red ruse, I guess, down there. Quick update on the Miami flood mitigation plan, which kind of is not part of the most recent hurricane, but it brought to bear, you know, front of mind what can possibly go wrong here. And there was some controversy. People didn't like the appearance of what the Army had uh, had proposed. What's going on there? We're still continuing to work with the local community. What we would like to envision is flood mitigation that's really in-depth. So there's more to uh, flood mitigation than just a seawall. And I think that is that was sort of the initial response. The concern is that uh, the the appearance of a seawall is is not optimal for a community. But there's different ways of designing seawalls that it's just, that can uh, appear in very different ways. And so we're at, we're asking um, how can we redesign that so it looks like something different. And there's really innovative ways. Uh, you integrate a park, and so it's at different levels, and it, the appearance can be uh, quite dramatically different. And so I think. 
working with the community, we can come up with those. We also look at flood mitigation in depth. So if you start working further out into the ocean to slow down the effects of that storm surge, you really can reduce the amount of impacts when it does get to shore. So there's a lot of different things we can do with a community that is very set on protecting that shoreline. If Pulling back is not the solution. There's other opportunities. It just comes at a different cost. Right. I was going to say that sounds more expensive. But in an area like Miami, which is very tied to the coastline, we can develop those options. Then they can make the decision. Because at some point it has to actually happen. Because if you believe that hurricanes are getting worse and this is going to be happening more often, you can't wait 25 years while everybody signs off on something. Exactly. We have to, we have to provide the solutions they need today. And, and we're seeing the frequency and intensity uh, simply go up. All right, let's uh, move on. You had a development strategy, a research and development strategy that came out almost a year ago, but it's still in effect. What is it that you are prioritizing? What's, what's the progress on that agenda so far? Right. Really, our agenda is focused on coming up with new types of solutions in a very basic form. We're not going to be able to use the old technology to develop new old solutions. With every one of our projects, we want to put a little bit of money aside for research and development. So if you think about harmful algae blooms, which we see all over the, uh, really the continental United States, it's not just in Florida anymore. Um, So what are some innovative ways to resolve harmful algae blooms? We just can't build larger and larger detention areas because they take up a huge amount of real estate at a huge cost. So we're looking at things that um, actually making biofuel out of algae. Right now, it's not at the scale that, that, that's going to make that viable solution. Um, but as we continue to refine that technology, at some point it will be. So there's a lot of innovative solutions to solve old-term problems. We're speaking with Major General Richard Heitkamp. He's Deputy Commanding General of the Army Corps of Engineers. And maybe if you would review some of the work you're doing under the infrastructure spending bill. There was a little kick in the budget there for the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a huge kick, sir, and it means a lot to us because our aging infrastructure was in dire need of improvement. And we appreciate the support from Congress and the American people to have the opportunity to go back and repair so much of the vital infrastructure for our country. We are the protectors of our waterways, the Corps of Engineers, and people don't often think about our waterways as as these vital connections for our supply lines, our critical supply chains, Um, but our waterways are fundamental uh, to our supply chains and to our commerce. In fact, there's barges getting stuck in the Mississippi even as we speak. Right, because of low water levels. So even in the best of times, we still have to do a lot of dredging, remove material from the bottom of a river so that those barges can get through. Um, And it's not always just grain or fertilizer or concrete or cement. Um, It's often, it's those critical uh, microchips that are going into our cars that are coming into Baltimore Harbor that we're dredging to make sure that they can get into the East Coast to go into those plants that make the cars here in the United States. So um, our waterways are fundamental to the commerce in our country, the manufacturing capability in our country. And, And so the infrastructure bill has provided us 
the capability to ensure that those waterways stay open. And do you have priorities for what specific waterways or projects you want to do first? Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of technology that goes into it as well. So it's almost like predicting where the snowstorms are going to be so you can remove the snow. Um, Dredging is a lot like that. And we can predict where's the sedimentation going to be, how do we remove it where, and uh, almost like focusing on certain areas at certain times of the year we also look at the environmental impact. So we don't want to impact where the turtles are going to be nesting and where they are going to be at certain times of the year. So we'll put off uh, actually sure doing enough. dredging in that area. A seasonal so, kind of a seasonal, uh, exactly. rhythm to it. Where are you going to go first? What's the first thing on the agenda that you're actually going to start digging? Oh, it's abs- it is so complicated that, that it, I, we'd take the rest of the hour to uh, talk about that. It's a very complex industry to start with. So there are, there's a whole industry dedicated to removing that material from the bottom of a river. So no, I was just asking, are there any particular rivers you can name that are going to be first on the list? Yes, there's a whole complex of those. One of the most important is the Mississippi River right. and its tributaries. So uh, over 60% of the world's foodstuffs, the world's foodstuffs, come from the Mississippi River and its tributaries. That's not to mention the commerce that we just talked about. So that's fundamental. And you just talked about the drought that they're suffering right now, and that makes it even more important that we are there doing the preventive maintenance of that dredging to make sure that that waterway stays open. So you want to turn it into Young Man River. (laughs) Exactly. Major General Richard Heitkamp is Deputy Commander of the Army Corps of Engineers. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action, and he took that to 
heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.